Welcome, my fellow patriots, to the Patriot Lessons American History and Civics podcast, where we renew the spirit of America by learning about what makes America the greatest nation in world history, including our founding first principles, key documents and speeches, founding fathers and other great patriots, as well as flags and other key symbols of America. I am Oakland County Circuit Court Judge Michael Warren, former member of the State Board of Education and co-creator of Patriot Week. This episode continues our detailed review of the Declaration of Independence. Over this podcast, we will be examining each sentence of the Declaration so that we can understand the foundation of our freedoms and liberties. If you missed our prior episodes, you might want to go back to catch up to where we are. But if you don't care about the background and how we arrived at the text we'll be exploring today, please jump on board with this episode right now. When we return, we will continue our exploration of the mind-blowing sentence that begins, We hold these truths to be self-evident. Welcome back, my fellow patriots. We are the most unique country in human history because we were the first to actually lay out in writing our origins, purpose, and underlying founding first principles in the Declaration of Independence, And unlike some other nations that have done the same thing since, we actually take our declaration seriously. The second full sentence of the declaration is as follows, quote, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, unquote. As we have discussed before, this sentence was completely revolutionary. In your civics and history classes, You might have dwelled on it for a few minutes, or for a few seconds, or more likely, maybe not at all. In any event, to do it justice, we really need to do a deep dive. Today, we are only exploring a small phrase, quote, that all men are created equal, unquote. Simple, right? A two-minute episode? Ha! This is truly an amazingly complex topic. In an earlier episode, We spent some serious time discussing the founding generation's belief in a creator that created the universe, and man in particular, and that there were certain laws that flowed from the nature of creation, what we call natural law. With that understanding, we can now delve into the idea of equality. This first principle of equality has received a great deal of attention since 1776 and is very much on the minds of many citizens today. I want to get one issue out in front right away. The founding generation was not perfect. They were very flawed. They declared the first principle of equality as a self-evident truth and then lived their lives in many ways, exactly opposite from what you might expect. Many had slaves, almost all discriminated on the basis of sex and race and religion and property ownership. This podcast is not going to shy away from these issues at all. Quite the opposite. This podcast would do a thorough analysis of how the country moved to expand the blessings of liberty, a journey that is not yet complete. In particular, we will tackle the transformation of our understanding of equality when we address the Constitution, specifically the Reconstruction Amendments and the Women's Suffrage Amendment. But that is a way off. I'm giving you a teaser to stick with this podcast. But the focus of today's episode is to discuss what was meant by equality at the time of the Declaration of Independence. To really understand how revolutionary our commitment to equality was in 1776, we need to investigate mankind's treatment of equality before the founding generation. This is a mammoth topic, and again, I will only be doing a very high-level review of how inequality has manifested itself throughout history. But this exploration will make it very clear that America was truly exceptional in its embrace of equality as a first principle. Instead of trying to chart the whole course of human events, we will focus on seven examples. Example number one, monarchy and divine right. Most people are familiar with the idea of a king, a monarch who sits on a throne in rural society. His will, for the most part, is the law. Encyclopedia Britannica.com summarizes the theory quite well. Quote, divine right of kings, In European history, it was a political doctrine in defense of monarchical absolutism, which asserted that kings derived their authority from God and could not therefore be held accountable for their actions by any earthly authority such as a parliament, 
originating in Europe, the divine right theory can be traced to the medieval conception of God's award of temporal power to the political ruler, paralleling the award of spiritual power to the church. Unquote. Okay, the concept is simple enough. The argument is that the king is chosen by God and sits on the throne by right. King James I of England wrote in his works, published in 1609, what this means. Before I get to the quote, please note that when he refers to gods in the plural with an S, the James uses here is uncapitalized. So when he refers to kings as gods, he does not use the capital, which means he really doesn't believe that they are heavenly beings. But when he refers to God, the divine supreme judge of the world, he does capitalize that. Quote, the state of monarchy is the supremest thing upon the earth. For kings are not only God's lieutenants upon earth and sit upon God's throne, but even by God himself are called gods. Kings are justly called gods, for they exercise a manner or resemblance of divine power upon earth. For if you will consider the attributes to God, you shall see how they agree in the person of a king. God hath power to create or destroy, make or unmake at his pleasure, to give life or to send death, to judge all and to be judged nor accountable to none, to raise low things and to make high things low at his pleasure. And to God are both souls and body due. And the like power have kings. They make and unmake their subjects. They have power of raising and casting down, of life and of death, judges over all their subjects and in all causes and yet accountable to none but God only. Unquote. Now, King James I, in other words, not only claimed that he ruled England because God ordained that he ruled England, but that he was by godly decree a lieutenant on earth for God. He was the equivalent of a God on earth. He was all-powerful. He could create or destroy, raise things up or drive them down. Life and death was at the king's fingers. Bishop Jacques Bousset of France expressed a similar sentiment. In his very interesting work, Statecraft Drawn from the Very Words of the Holy Scriptures, this work was published 100 years after King James' writings, that is 1709, and only less than 70 years before the Declaration of Independence, Bousset wrote, quote, Rulers act as the ministers of God and his lieutenants on earth. It is through them that God exercises his empire. The person of the king is sacred, and that to attack him in any way is sacrilege. God has the kings anointed by his prophets. Kings should be guarded as holy things, and whosoever neglects to protect them is worthy of death. The royal power is absolute. The prince need not render his account to acts to no one. Unquote. It is hard to believe that someone could outdo King James I, but Bishop Bousset clearly gives him a run for his money. The king, as God's representative on earth, has absolute power. No one can challenge him. In fact, he claims that attacking the king in any way, which appears to even mean just criticism, is punishable by death. He even argues that if the king is neglected, the offender should die. I'm not exactly sure I know what that means, but I wouldn't want to test Bousset. The good bishop has pulled out the sword to massacre opponents, or even neglectors, of the king. Having said that, Bousset also warns the kings that absolute power should not be used as an excuse for arbitrary government. He reminds them that we all eventually will be, quote, gods of clay and dust, unquote, and that power should be exercised with humility. So here we have the idea that God has anointed certain people to literally be our superiors and lord over us. The idea of the divine right of kings, however, just scratches the surface on the idea of inequality. Our second example, slavery. Today, many people in the United States seem to only focus on slavery here. And after all, that is a natural impulse. And don't worry, we will be addressing American slavery when we review the Constitution. But to focus solely on American slavery really, really minimizes the phenomenon. If you think about it for more than a second, you'll realize that slavery is quite prominent throughout human history. Remember the Jews who were in bondage for 400 years until Moses led them to freedom? Ancient Egypt was hardly alone. The history press summarized it like this, quote, Slavery has existed for millennia in varying forms in all parts of the world. 
affecting all races, genders, and age groups. It is only in recent times that it has been globally outlawed with the United Nations General Assembly adopting the Declaration of Human Rights in 1948 that specified that freedom from slavery is a universal human right and it is to be prohibited in all forms." Unquote. As the same source explains, over the ages, slavery has taken many forms, including chattel slavery, bonded slavery, forced labor, and sexual labor. Chattel slavery is the worst form. With chattel slavery, enslaved persons are treated like animals and have almost no rights. Slaves were bought and sold, families broken up, and the enslaved required to do manual or other labor without pay. This is what we had in the South, and what most Americans equate with slavery. It was brutal. Just brutal. Bonded slavery is slavery to pay off the debt. Sometimes this debt was voluntarily taken, like the indentured servants who came to America. Their passages to the colonies were paid for by a third party, and the indentured servants were required to work for their creditors for a period of years, usually seven, to pay off the debt. When they were done from their indentured servitude, they became free. Sometimes the person they worked for even gave them land, tools, or other property. The indentured servants, once they were freed from their term of bondage, had all the rights that anyone else in their position would have. They became free men and women. Chattel and bonded slavery had the full recognition of the law. It's protected and enforced by the law, often with elaborate slave codes. For example, fugitive slaves are returned by law enforcement and bonded slavery is enforced by the courts. Forced labor is usually something more in the shadows, like someone being coerced to work by a gang or organized crime ring. Sexual slavery is human trafficking, usually of women and girls who are forced into lives of prostitution or the sex trade. Again, this is usually in the shadows. Slavery is as old as civilization. Most historians seem to agree that slavery began in Mesopotamia and Sumeria, that would be at the dawn of civilization. Slaves were often the bounty of war. Slaves also were part of the workforce. The most ancient written reference to slavery is in the famous Code of Hammurabi, a Babylonian set of laws dated in approximately 1754 BC, which states, quote, if anyone takes a male or female slave of the court or a male or female slave of a freedman outside the city gates, he shall be put to death, unquote. In other words, if you tried to help a slave escape, you would be executed. Slavery was common throughout Asia, Africa, and Europe for thousands of years. Ancient Greece and Rome were full of slaves. In fact, slave labor was essential to their workforce. Athens at one point reportedly used 30,000 slaves for silver mines. At several points in Roman history, the enslaved outnumbered the free in Rome. Slavery was a fact of life in pre-Islamic Arabia and the Middle East and it only got worse with Islam. Renowned Islamic scholar Bernard Lewis writes, quote, In one of the saddest paradoxes of human history, it was the humanitarian reforms brought by Islam that resulted in a vast development of the slave trade inside, and still more outside, the Islamic empire, unquote. In other words, Islam prohibited the enslavement of fellow Muslims, so you think that would be advancement for humanity, but instead of abolishing it, they created a massive slave trade to enslave Christians and other non-Muslims. And we can't forget about the Western Hemisphere before the Europeans arrived. It is also ugly. Andreas Resendez in Newsweek refers to slavery in North America before the arrival of Europeans. Quote, The beginnings of this other slavery are lost in the mist of time. Native peoples such as the Zabotecs, Mayans, and Aztecs took captives to use as sacrificial victims. The Iroquois waged campaigns called mourning wars on neighboring groups to avenge and replace their dead. And Indians in the Pacific Northwest included male and female slaves as part of the goods sent by the groom to his bride's family to finalize marriages among the elite. Native Americans had enslaved each other for millennia." Unquote. Ancient Aztecs sacrificed prisoners of war to their gods. In fact, many accounts reveal that during the consecration of a single temple in 1487, between 4,000 and much more likely 
84,000 people were slaughtered as ritual sacrifices in just a four-day period. Aztecs enslaved their own people for debts or as a punishment for a crime. The Mayan and Incan cultures also had slaves. Leaping ahead to the 1900s, slavery continued to rear its ugly head. The Japanese enslaved thousands of Korean and Chinese women during World War II as, quote, comfort women, unquote. In other words, sex slaves for the troops. Nazi Germany used slave labor. Nine million people were sent to concentration camps, and those that were not immediately exterminated were enslaved. Slavery was not abolished in Saudi Arabia and Yemen until 1964. Unfortunately, there is much, much more. The idea that some should be slaves to others, protected by the law, is a long, dismal tradition, spanning across the centuries and across the globe. Our third example of inequality is feudalism and serfdom. This is a system of social organization that slowly came to replace slavery in Europe. With the collapse of the Roman Empire, eventually the system came to dominate Europe in the Middle Ages. Think of the time of knights and shining armor and castles and large plots of land farmed by poor peasants. When Rome collapsed, large landowners were the most important force keeping the society together. This system was organized around landowners who owned two swaths of land, and farmers and others who worked on the land rented it from the landowner. Those who worked the land were of two major categories, serfs and free workers. Serfs were not slaves. They could not be sold to others. They could marry and own personal property, and they had other legal rights. In fact, the landowner was supposed to protect them and ensure order. Serfs, however, were tied to the soil. That is, and more importantly, their descendants could not leave the land without the permission of the landowners. The landowners were often nobility, but sometimes they could be organizations like monasteries. In this feudal system, the king was on top, the nobility under him, and the peasants under the nobles. The nobles pledged to serve the king, and the king pledged to protect the nobles. In turn, the peasants and free workers pledged to serve the nobles, and the nobles were supposed to protect the peasants and the free workers. There was also a complicated interaction with the church, which is another podcast altogether. This hierarchy of inequality dominated for centuries. Serfdom, albeit a bit better than slavery, was entrenched in inequality and made a dismal life for millions across many generations and throughout Europe. Our fourth example is France's ancient regime. Ancient regime. This regime began when feudalism began to die out in the 15th century and collapsed with the French Revolution beginning in 1789. In essence, the society was divided into three major estates. The first estate was the clergy. The Catholic Church had huge landownings and political power. They had special legal, political, property, and cultural privileges that elevated them above most anyone else in the society. The Church owned approximately 10% of all the land in France and collected huge amounts of revenue from rent and tithes. Meanwhile, it was exempt from taxation. The estate was enormously influential in government affairs and everyday life. This estate, however, had its own divisions. There were the elite leaders of the church, that is, the bishops and the archbishops and cardinals, and they were usually wealthy aristocrats. On the other side of the spectrum were modest, even poor parish priests. Many of the elite became arrogant, corrupt, and interested in perpetuating their own wealth over saving souls. The parish priests often identified with their flock. There were about 100,000 to 100,000 members of the first estate at the time of the French Revolution. That would amount to less than one-half of 1% 1 of the population. The second estate was the nobility. This estate included nobles of the sword and nobles of the robe. The nobles of the sword earned it through military service, while nobles of the robe earned it through other endeavors, such as finance, government administration, and judicial service. The titles of nobility were hereditary. These titles could also be purchased, which is referred to as venal acquisition. Nobles gained certain privileges and rights with their title, including revenues from rents, dues, and other sources. And like the first estate, they were exempt from taxation. Because they were nobles, industrious work was considered beneath them, although this attitude changed a bit a few decades before the revolution. Some nobles were arrogant, corrupt, and only cared about themselves and their status. 
Others were reform-oriented, hard-working, and wanted to improve society. They all nearly saw themselves superior to the common people. There were about 400,000 people in the second estate, and that would be about 1.5% of the population. The third estate was everyone else. This included the very poor and some very rich. They all had to pay taxes and other dues to support the clergy and the nobles. They had no political power. The first and second estates looked down on this estate. The divisions within the third estate included the bourgeoisie, people like merchants, manufacturers, bankers, lawyers, scientists, and writers. These people had money and property. Sometimes they would buy their way into the nobility. Call them roughly 1 million people and about 4% of the population. The remainder were the peasants, at least 21 million people, who worked the land or did other manual labor. This was at least 87% of the population. And then, of course, there was the king, who was the embodiment of the divine right of kings, and he lorded over everyone. The ancient regime exemplified legal inequality being the core of society and government. How this came crashing down is one of my absolute favorite historical periods and the subject of some fine podcast. But I digress. Our fifth example is Hinduism. According to History.com, many scholars consider Hinduism to be the world's oldest religion, with its roots and customs dating back more than 4,000 years. It is the world's third largest religion today, with about 900 million followers, and 95% of its followers live in India. I will not try to explain Hinduism in full here for several reasons, among those being, I am no expert. Another is that this is worthy of its own podcast series. Have you noticed the number of times I say this? Come on, aspiring podcasters. I give you about one podcast series idea an episode, and this one has even more today. Okay, back to Hinduism. The key issue we are exploring today is equality, and Hinduism's caste system is in direct contradiction to the founding generation's ideas. The caste system is contained within the Manusmetriti, and I'm sure I massacred that, I apologize now, Hinduism's most important and authoritative text, which is at least 3,000 years old. Brahma, the Hindu god of creation, created the caste system. To summarize, I quote History.com's explanation, quote, The caste system is a social hierarchy in India that divides Hindus based on their karma and dharma. Many scholars believe the system dates back more than 3,000 years. The four main castes in order of prominence include Brahman, the intellectual and spiritual leaders, Krishnyas, the protectors and public servants of society, Vasriyas, the skillful producers, Shadras, the unskilled laborers. Many subcategories also exist within each caste. The untouchables are a class of citizens that are outside of the caste system and considered to be in the lowest level of the social hierarchy. For centuries, the caste system determined every aspect of a person's social, professional, and religious status in India. When India became an independent nation, its constitution banned discrimination based on the caste. Today, the caste system still exists in India, but is loosely followed. Many of the old customs are overlooked, but some traditions, such as only marrying within a specific caste, are still embraced." Unquote. Again, I apologize for massacring some of those terms. This sounds somewhat similar to, but very different from, the ancient regime in France. Like nobility in Europe, the caste system was hereditary. But unlike the ancient regime, you could never buy yourself out or elevate from the third class to the first class by becoming a clergyman. You are the caste of your parents, and your children will inherit your caste. You have to marry within your caste. The system was enforced by the royalty. Jarayam V at HinduWebsite.com explains the cold reality of this ethic. Quote, Perhaps there is no other nation in the world that is as openly and shamelessly as racial as India. To be born in an upper caste is a matter of pride whether the family to which a person belongs deserves it or not. A number of Indians who visit foreign countries often complain about being treated differently on account of their skin color or accent. They overlook the fact that a vast number of people in their own country exhibit a far greater obsession with accent, skin color, and caste. Indian film stars put on white makeup, on the screen and off the screen, 
even if they are black, to look acceptable and desirable. The country's democracy is not a true democracy, but a castocracy, where people vote and leaders are elected on caste lines. The Indian political parties thrive and succeed by appealing to this base emotion of people. There are countless scholars who justify Hindu caste system, quoting chapter and verse from the scriptures, ignoring the fact that they were convenient interpolations or authored by bigoted scholars in an otherwise sacred lore to justify a cruel and unjust system using the very authority of God. Unquote. According to the British Broadcasting System News, Hinduism's four main castes were divided into about 3,000 castes with 25,000 subcastes. This is the ancient regime on steroids. Massive, massive steroids. Hinduism is yet another expression of how inequality is a way of life. Our sixth example is the Nazis. Led by perhaps the most notorious dictator of all time, Adolf Hitler, the National Socialist German Workers' Party in Germany was founded on the ideal of the inequality of people. The Nazis believed that those possessing German blood or Aryan blood were the superior race. Among the 25 points of the Nazi party was, quote, number four, only those who are our fellow countrymen can become citizens. Only those who have German blood, regardless of creed, can be our countrymen. Hence, no Jew can be a countryman, unquote. Hitler emphasized a racial purity and the need to expel non-Germans from the fatherland. He demanded a, quote, German state for a German nation, unquote. In his infamous book, Mein Kampf, he explained his theory quite thoroughly. He argued that inequality was a self-evident truth. In particular, he asserted that a superior person should not have children with an inferior person because it would result in children who would be in the middle of the two parents, which wasted and diluted the superior parent's genes. He extended that logic to various ethnic groups and races. Quote, such mating, unquote, Hitler observed, is, quote, contrary to the will of nature for a higher breeding of all life, unquote. He continued his argument that, quote, no more than nature desires the mating of a weaker with stronger individuals, even less does she desire the blending of a higher with a lower race, since if she did, her whole work of higher breeding over perhaps hundreds of thousands of years might be ruined with one blow, unquote. Here, Hitler lays it out. Superior men should not mate with inferior women, and vice versa, because the offspring would be a dilution of the stronger individual. More importantly, for the sake of mankind, races must not mix. It is against the law of nature. It poisons the stronger race. It ruins progress. It subverts the superior race to doom. He says this quite explicitly later in the book. Quote, when man attempts to rebel against the iron logic of nature, he comes into struggle with the principles to which he himself owes his existence as a man. And this attack must lead to his own doom. Worse, because the superior race is responsible for all science, art, and technology, and creativity, to dilute it ruins the superior culture, unquote. And, quote, if they perish, the beauty of this earth will sink into the grave with them, unquote. As such, quote, all great cultures of the past perished only because the originally creative race died out from blood poisoning, unquote. The triumph of mankind, its forward progress, all that is beautiful and wonderful in society depends on the master race being pure and unpolluted. The idea of racial equality and individual equality, therefore, must be unequivocally rejected by the government. Instead, the very purpose of the government is to ensure the integrity of the master race. Hitler continued, quote, The focused philosophy finds the importance of mankind in its basic racial elements, in the state it sees on principle only a means to an end, and construes its end as the preservation of the racial existence of man." Unquote. Unlike the founders, Hitler espoused the idea that the purpose of the government was to maintain racial purity, to protect the race above all else. But it's not just to protect racial purity, it is to ensure that the lesser races also serve the master race. He continues that the government, quote, 
by no means believes in equality of the races, and along with they, difference, it recognizes their higher or lesser value and feels itself obligated through this knowledge to promote the victory of the better and stronger, and to demand the subordination of the inferior and weaker in accordance with the eternal will that dominates the universe. Thus, in principle, it serves the basic aristocratic idea of nature and believes in the validity of this law down to the last individual. It seems not only the different value of the races, but also the different value of individuals." Unquote. Nature and nature's God, therefore, demands that the state serve the master race, protect it, and ensure the lesser races serve the master race. In addition, the state is to do this down to the individual level, superiors lording over the weak. You know by now I like to quote primary sources. I do this in part because I don't want you to just take my word for what I say. But I also do it because I think it is the best way to learn, and here to learn from your enemies. Had the leaders of the Western nations read Mayan Kampf and taken it seriously, we may have been able to avoid the most costly conflict in world history. Instead, as we know all too well, Hitler's philosophy became the law of Germany. Germany became a totalitarian dictatorship to promote racial superiority, to protect and expand the Aryan and Germanic race, and to enslave and exterminate the inferior races. Jews were considered rats and needed to be exterminated. The Holocaust resulted in the genocide of six million souls. The Slavic nations needed to give the Germans breathing space and slave labor. World War started. Tens of millions died. This is the legacy of racial purity and inequality maximized. Inequality incarnate. Aspiring Podcasters, yet another podcast series. And then we have our seventh example. Now, you might be saying right about now, Judge Horn, as interesting as this is, six examples is enough to make your point. Well, maybe, or maybe not. Putting aside the caste system, which was technically outlawed a generation ago, there were very few people advocating for a return to the divine right of kings, or feudalism, the ancient regime, or Nazism. But socialism keeps coming back. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, socialism? That's based on the belief of the equality of man. How does that fit in this discussion? Well, let's take a more careful look. We need to address what it says and what it does. Our last example is communism. Of the Soviet flavor, although they pretty much all follow the same blood-soaked journey, although its roots run through ancient history, Modern communism is universally acknowledged to be the brainchild of Karl Marx with a strong assist from Friedrich Engels. Again, this is another podcast series unto itself, but for our purposes, using very broad strokes, the idea is that as a matter of history, economic relations define the human race. The law, culture, society, it is all defined by economics. The key elements of power relations arise from the means of production, that is, resources and capital needed to create food, goods, and the other products that men and women use. Men and women supply the labor that allow the means of production to create the goods we need. In a capitalist system, in which the means of production are owned by individuals and companies, there is a free market of competition, which alienates the individual. Explained in his masterwork Das Kapital, society is divided into economic classes. At the top are a very few capitalist owners, who own the means of production and exploit the labor of the workers. Inherent in this division of society is a class struggle, and it is the class struggle that defines history in society. According to the Communist Manifesto, written by Marx and Engels, quote, the history of all hitherto existing human society is the history of class struggles, unquote. This class struggle resulted in the collapse of feudalism into the capitalist system. In the modern age of capitalism, the owners of production, dubbed the bourgeoisie, struggle against the workers, called the proletariat. Marx proclaimed that the proletariat, as a matter of historical law, were destined to overthrow the bourgeoisie and take control of society and the means of production. The Communist Manifesto explains, quote, the weapons in which the bourgeoisie felled feudalism to the ground are now turned against the bourgeoisie itself. But not only has the bourgeoisie forged the weapons that bring death to itself, it has also called into existence the men who are to wield those weapons, the modern working class, the proletarians, unquote. Thus, 
a violent workers' revolution or overthrow the capitalists. The Communist Manifesto explains that, quote, the immediate aim of the Communist is the same as that of all proletarian parties. Formation of the proletariat into a class, overthrow the bourgeoisie supremacy, conquest of political power by the proletariat, unquote. And what will the Communists do? The Communist Manifesto explains it very succinctly. Quote, the theory of the Communist may be summed up in a single sentence, abolition of private property, unquote. Well, not quite. A few pages later in the work, Marx and Engel explain that in the most advanced countries, the communists will not only abolish private property, they will institute a heavy progressive or graduated income tax, abolish all right of inheritance, centralize all credit in the government, centralize transportation and communications in the state, create a common plan for agriculture, factory, and other means of production, evenly distribute the population in the country, and establish free public education. To this end, the Communist Manifesto declares, quote, in short, the Communists everywhere support every revolutionary movement against the existing social and political order of things, unquote. Marx and Engels predicted that after there was a successful revolution and transition, the state would wither away and usher in a new birth of freedom for men and women. The end of the Communist Manifesto has some of the most famous sentences in political history, quote, the communists disdain to conceal their views and aims. They openly declare that their ends can be attained only by the forcible overthrow of all existing social conditions. Let the ruling classes tremble at the communistic revolution. The proletarians have nothing to lose but their chains. They have a world to win. Working men of all countries, unite. Unquote. In fact, many working men, intellectuals, and others did unite and it lit the world on fire. This all happened well after Marx and Engels were dead and buried. Their view of utopia on earth was perverted into hell. Anyone who doubts that need only read Alexander Solzhenitsyn's masterpiece, The Gulag Archipelago, about the horrors of the Soviet Union. The Black Book of Communism counts approximately 100 million dead in the wake of the communist ideal. Why did this happen? because Marx, Engels, socialists, and communists rejected the very idea of the equality of man. Instead, they divided it into warring classes and set out to liquidate the bourgeoisie. It was not inequality based on race or royalty or other such characteristic, but on economic status. The state never withered away. It simply became a totalitarian monstrosity that murdered and murdered and murdered. We have quickly reviewed seven examples of the idea of inequality dominating human affairs. Kings and nobility, as embodied in the idea of divine right. Slavery, in which some, sometimes even a majority, are enslaved by masters who lord over them. Feudalism and serfdom, in which the peasants were tied to the soil and possessed little autonomy. The ancient regime of pre-revolutionary France, dividing the society into three estates, Hinduism, dividing the people into thousands of castes plus untouchables. Nazism, dividing the world into master and subservient races, with Jews marked for extermination. Communism, dividing the world into class struggle, with the aim of the proletariat to violently overthrow the bourgeoisie. Modern history is also replete with such societies. South Africa, during apartheid, segregated society by race. In communist China, the party members are superior, and in many countries, major ethnic groups oppress minorities, and in others, minorities oppress major ethnic groups. Whether based on class, caste, religion, race, tribe, ethnic group, economic status, language, party membership, eugenics, or otherwise, governments throughout most of world history have maintained divisions among individuals and groups. These divisions were often woven into the fundamental law of societies. Inequality codified in the law was, in fact, a cornerstone of government throughout world history. Such governments were based on the proposition of the self-evident truth, in their eyes, that all people were not created equal, but instead of the inherent inequality of all people. The founders rejected this view. They embraced the Judeo-Christian understanding of the Creator, an understanding that the Creator created all individuals, that each person rises from his handiwork, and that every individual embodies his blessing. 
regardless of physical and mental differences between individuals, and despite disparities in wealth or station, each individual, as someone flowing from the Creator, is equally precious in His eyes. Each person has dignity before God, and no person is elevated above his fellow man. Most importantly, each is loved equally by the Creator, and each is judged by his or her deeds and intentions. Thus, putting aside the uh, theological briar patch of predestination, each has an equal opportunity to obtain redemption from sin or damnation, and each chooses his or her own path. The great historian Russell Kirk summed it up concisely. Quote, The men of the Continental Congress did subscribe to two venerable concepts of equality, equality before the law and equality in the judgment of God. Unquote. America rejected the deliberately inequitable regimes dominating the globe in their time. From its very founding, America aspired to embody the first principle that all men are created equal. The Declaration of Independence affirmed this principle. So did the state constitutions that were drafted and ratified following the Declaration of Independence. Those constitutions consistently state in some form, quote, that all men are by nature equally free and independent, unquote. In 1863, Abraham Lincoln reaffirmed this founding first principle in the Gettysburg Address when he explained that the nation was, quote, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal, unquote. This equality of each individual, however, is one of rights and of opportunity, not results. In other words, as the 14th Amendment states, each individual is entitled to, quote, equal protection of the laws, unquote. This equal protection, however, does not require that the government attempt to equalize the social status, wealth, and property of individuals. Equality before the law simply requires that each individual, irrespective of race, color, creed, nationality, wealth, social status, religion, and similar characteristics, be treated equally by the government. Wealthy white Lutheran men, therefore, should be subject to the same treatment under the law as poor black Muslim women, and vice versa. Combined with the rule of law, this first principle requires that each person be treated equally under the law and that the equal protection of the laws be afforded to all. This tears down the various ways that inequality had dominated mankind for so long. This totally rejects the idea of monarchs and the divine right of kings, as well as a noble class embodied in the ancient regime. It renounces the infamous class divisions of Marx and Engels and the caste system of Hinduism. John Adams remarked in a letter to Richard Cranch on August 2nd, 1776, that because of the revolution, quote, idolatry to monarchs and servility to aristocratical pride was never so totally eradicated from so many minds in such a short time, unquote. The whole idea that the general population was inferior, could be slaves, serfs, peasants, or untouchables, was totally rejected. In 1789, historian and political figure David Ramsey summarized the transformation of America. Quote, a citizen of the United States means a member of this new nation. This principle of government being radically changed by the revolution, the political character of the people was also changed from subjects to citizens. The difference is immense. Subject means one who is under the power of another, but a citizen is a unit of a mass of free people who collectively possess sovereignty. Subjects look up to a master, but citizens are so far equal that none have hereditary rights superior to others. Each citizen of a free state contains within himself, by nature and the Constitution, as much of the common sovereignty as another. In the eye of reason and philosophy, the political condition of citizens is more exalted than that of noblemen. Dukes and earls are the creatures of kings and may be made by them at pleasure, but citizens possess on their own right original sovereignty, unquote. That's an amazing transformation, which I think we often overlook. The transformation from subject to citizen was revolutionary. In 1776, the Virginia Declaration of Rights written by somewhat overlooked but enormously influential founding father George Mason, specifically eliminated nobility and any hereditary privileges of property or political advantages. The Declaration of Rights specifically observed that no one should benefit from the state offered privileges except in exchange for public services because the idea that a person 
could be born a magistrate or a legislator or judge is, quote, unnatural and absurd, unquote. Mason's observation may seem obvious to us today, but it was totally radical and revolutionary in 1776. Consequently, as John Adams put it, the poorest and most unfortunate people in society, quote, by the unalterable laws of God and nature, as well as entitled to the benefit of the air to breathe, light to see, food to eat, and clothes to wear, as the nobles or the king, unquote. And what did this mean for the common man in society? Well, as Thomas Jefferson wrote in his autobiography, the nation would replace the, quote, aristocracy of wealth to make an opening of the aristocracy of virtue and talent, unquote. Nobility and class divisions were repudiated. Equality, according to David Ramsey, became the, quote, life and soul, unquote, of America. He could observe that, quote, in royal governments, he that can best please his superiors by the low arts of fawning and oation is most likely to obtain favor, unquote. While in America, one can only succeed on his or her merits. What mattered was hard work, industry, intelligence, dedication, frugality, creativity, honesty, integrity. This is what counted, not bloodlines. Charles Coatwith Pickney, a leading political leader from South Carolina, likewise could accurately declare at the Constitutional Convention that, quote, equality is the leading feature of the United States, unquote. No divine right, no ancient regime, no serfs, no class warfare, no caste here. Because of the nature of the new world, real property was widely distributed. With the overthrow of the shackles of British tyranny, almost all male landowners had the ability to vote. That seems like a small segment of the population to us today, and indeed it was. It excluded women, slaves, racial, and sometimes religious minorities. But for its time, it was a quantum leap, something unheard of in world history. Indeed, putting aside the old ancient democracies in Greece, America was the first society in the world to bring ordinary people into government as participants and as rulers. And remember, it was not just the franchise that is voting that was at stake. Ordinary people could speak their minds, practice their religion, assemble, petition the government, and run for and hold political office. In fact, some of the leading lights of the founding generation would have been considered nothing but human trash in other societies. Alexander Hamilton, the aide-de-camp to George Washington, co-authored the Federalist Papers and the first Secretary of State of the Treasury, among other things, was an outcast orphan from a tropical island. Thomas Paine, the author of Common Sense and the Rights of Man, came from England nearly penniless, a failure at almost everything he tried, including his marriage, and about a year after arriving, he set the world on fire with common sense. John Adams came from what we would consider at best a middle-class background and became the colossus of independence. A leading political figure for generations, vice president under Washington and Washington's successor as president. Roger Sherman, who signed the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, was a shoemaker and small farmer. Benjamin Franklin's father made soap and candles, and Benjamin was apprenticed to his older brother as a printer because he could not pay for the education to be a minister or the apprentice fee to be a cutler, that is, someone who makes knives, forks, and spoons. Suffice it to say that there were plenty of rich people who were influential politicians, like Jefferson and Washington, and plenty of people who came from poor and modest means. The commitment of equality spread like wildfire. Soon, indentured servitude disappeared, and most states abolished property and religious qualifications to vote. Just to make the point rock solid, Article 1, Section 9 of the Constitution would abolish nobility. As we explore in much more detail later, obviously slavery, racial discrimination, and gender discrimination were still prevalent. But America's self-declaration that equality would be its pole star would eventually swamp those terrible sins. Okay, we have finished the phrase, quote, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, unquote. Some key takeaways from this episode. There were two main views of equality. The old view embodied in divine right, slavery, feudalism, the ancient regime, Hinduism, Nazism, and communism. 
that inequality defines society and establishes a political, cultural, and social order based on it, or the view adopted by the Declaration of Independence that all are equal before God and under God. The founders embraced equality, albeit in the breach. As flawed as it was, this was a remarkable quantum leap for mankind. Equality opened up opportunity for all citizens, regardless of the origins and social station they came from, to be protected by the same law and to participate in politics, even holding office, including as legislators, governors, and presidents. Ladies and gentlemen, we have made a great deal of progress having tackled the age-old meaning of equality in the Declaration of Independence. Patriots, join us next time when we explore the phrase, quote, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, unquote. Until then, God bless you, and God bless America. To learn more about our Declaration of Independence, Constitution, American History, and Civics, please subscribe to our podcast. Also visit PatriotWeek.org. Patriot Week was started by my then 10-year-old daughter when she pounded on the table and demanded a new celebration for America. We are now nationwide, recently been recognized by the United States Senate in a unanimous resolution, and we really can use your help. You can follow us on Twitter at Patriot Week, on Facebook on our group page, and on Instagram at Patriot Week 1776. If, again, if you're interested in becoming involved in this grassroots effort or have any questions or comments about this podcast or Patriot Week in general, please send us a message on the social media platforms I've mentioned or connect with me directly at mwarren at patriotweek.org. That's M-W-A-R-R-E-N at patriotweek.org. Also consider my book, America's Survival Guide, How to Stop America's Impending Suicide by Reclaiming Our First Principles in History by visiting americasurvivalguide.com Amazon, or any other online retailer. Until next time, God bless you, and God bless America.